wall, behind and beyond, and I am Philip Alvin Jones. Just like every other episode, we are spotlighting and bringing awareness to topics of discussion that deal with issues related to criminal justice, prison reform, mass incarceration, and how we turn a negative into a positive. Today we have a brother who embodies metamorphosis, or simply put, transformation. After being sentenced to 10 years in the Missouri Department of Correction, I'll let him tell the story. Prosecutor told this brother at his trial that he was a danger to society and had no hope for change. This sticks in my mind because not only was she wrong, but she told a lie. Now she has to eat those words as we have for you today, Dr. Stanley Andres. He is not a criminal, nor was he an incorrigible. He is an endocrinologist, scientist, and assistant professor at Howard University's College of Medicine. Dr. Andres' service commitments include executive director and founder of From Prison Cells to PhDs, board member of the formerly incarcerated college graduates network, past and past president of John Hopkins Postdoctoral Association, founder of the Diversity Postdoctoral Alliance, and he also does community outreach, youth mentor work, motivational speaking, as well as community activism. With that being said, let's welcome Dr. Stanley Andres to the show. How are you, my brother? Oh man, I'm doing I'm doing well, doing well, and and thank you, thank you for the invitation. It's incredible to be here. You know, I I know we'll probably get into some of this, you know, throughout our, our you know time together here, but it's just what you're doing is incredible. And I, as soon as I learned about you know what you had going on, I was on board, and I've been on board, as you know for you know several years and went to testify for you man you you're just you're doing incredible things i can when i got this invitation i was like hold up is he out like and then i just see the work that you're doing it's just incredible man to be doing it from where you're doing it and uh i mean i'm 100 on board with anything that you uh you know any way that i could help so when i got this invitation i was very excited that's what's up I came in contact with this brother back in 2017 while I was facilitating this class called Release Readiness. And one of our sponsors had met him at a conference they was having in Colorado, I believe it was. And they came back and they told me about it because they knew that I was from Maryland, right? So needless to say, I reached out to him, shared my story. I asked him to testify for me at a court hearing, and he showed up for me. So I want to take a moment before going any further to thank you, brother, because that support you gave me, man, it stuck with me to this day. Um, yeah. Without further ado, let's get to it. Yeah, yeah. The entry on steroids. Um, <laughs> what I realized after reading your book um, and felt it made us uh, kindred spirits was that you had a drive, man, that was uh, insatiable. Um, you know. You was all gas and no brakes on both worlds. Let me put it like that. But you had yeah. the same muscle and determination in getting your education as you did in the street life. You was trying to get your bag, and you ain't let nothing stand in your way. The same way when you came out and went to get your degrees and became the doctor that you are, you ain't let nothing stand in your way. And that's the same way as me. I don't believe in half-assing nothing. You know, if you're doing it, you got to do it 100. You know, don't yeah. play that because it's not a game. So I got some questions for you, brother. Are you okay. ready? 
Yeah, let's go. All right. Um, the first question I have for you is, what was life like for you growing up in Ferguson area of Missouri? Yeah, so I, I touch on that and I uh, in, in the book, and I appreciate you mentioning that, and I appreciate you getting the book, reading the book. Uh, you know, so Ferguson is a area that is adjacent to North St. Louis. North St. Louis, just like Baltimore, which you're familiar with, is battling for the top spot pretty much every year in violent crimes and murder rate. It's a, you know, area of the country that is very well known for um, violent crime, drug activity and things of that nature. Ferguson is actually, you know, a little bit outside of, uh, not outside, but it's it's not North St. Louis City, right? Um, and but growing up, everything that you know, folks know about Ferguson in terms of the uh, excessive policing, the fact that there was no black leadership, black teachers, you know, it was a primarily black area run by all white individuals. And growing up, that never really hit me. But what I do know is that I was just constantly interacting with police you know it, it just seemed like regular life though um so it really didn't take me as something that was being done abnormally to us in terms of that type of uh, heavy policing and excessive you know use of excessive force and things of that nature so it was just life um and i'm not you know i i would hate to say that uh that brought me and made uh, me make the decisions that I made to start selling drugs, but um, you know, it's certainly the social, political, societal views held on a young black man certainly plays a role with you know the decisions that a lot of black folks who end up in prison, um, you know, that that played a part in their role, and and it sure, it certainly did in mine. Again, there was a lot of societal, cultural things playing into me moving into this, you know, lifestyle that of hustling, selling drugs, and getting involved with uh, the criminal legal system. Um, and I could say that, you know, the two are there's some ties to it. So being being an immigrant family and just you know 
I would say any immigrant family, but particularly being a Haitian immigrant family in the in this particular time in the country, in the in the 80s, going into the 90s, this was a time when Haitian refugees were flooding to the states, and you know, still in, in rap culture today, you know, you got folks like uh, you know Lil Wayne and different people. There's a perception of what Haitians are, particularly Haitians in, in Miami, for instance. Um, so there was this view on Haitians that really wasn't a good view. It was already thought of as like people that are second class, it's the poorest country in the entire world. And, you know, people held certain views on them. So those views as a little kid, you know, you're telling folks that you're Haitian and, and even the black kids are looking kind of sideways at you. So, you know, uh, I, I had to that, you know, you had to kind of uh, find a place of being accepted. Um, and, you know, maybe that, I think that being different certainly played a little bit into me being a little more susceptible to wanting to find acceptance. And I found that in the streets. Um, so, you know, that, that certainly played a little bit of a role. Um, but, you know, to the same side of how my Haitian upbringings kind of maybe played a role in me getting into the hustling life. Um, you know, Haitians are a, uh, come from, I mean, really a lot of immigrant families come to the country with hopes of coming and, and finding something better. Um, so, you know, my parents kind of pushed education. And as you mentioned, you know, I, I had both my parents and, um, you know, they, they did push education. I mean, my father particularly, uh, you know, I got into the streets and started making decisions as with many teenagers, you know, that's the thing that for some reason, the human experience is this is this is the same shit that's been going on since the beginning of time. For some reason, our creator created us in a way that when we're teenagers, we don't have the ability to think like adults. We're not adults yet. Our brain's not fully developed. Um, so, you know, I was thinking like a teenager cause I was a teenager and, you know, I, I was, you know, moving, pushing away from things that my father was trying to instill in me. And instead I found more acceptance and, um, uh, and this place of, it, it was, it was more achievable to be in the streets. Like school didn't seem... That shit, it, it just didn't seem like something for people that looked like me. But the streets was very accepting and seemed very achievable and seemed very approachable and doable. And, you know, again, being a teenager, that's what uh, I was drawn to. And, and then and then on top of all that, you know, I became very good at it. So, you know, it just I just found myself getting deeper and deeper and deeper into, you know, more dangerous and violent situations. For sure, I read all that in the book too, man, and uh, I can identify. But you know, even thinking about having a um, two-parent home or having parents trying to instill good things in you, like you say, there's always the lure of your peers in the streets because, of course, you know what they're telling you is right. You know what I mean? And you hear what they're saying. But when you go out there, if you come from a low-income uh, part of your community where you know you don't have much, even if your parents have jobs. And everybody's got on these brand new shoes and everybody's coming to school fresh and fly and they and they and they, and they got jewelry on and um everybody's looking at them and they they, they the man. 
it's, it's very easy for even a kid with instilled principles such as education pursuits to find his way into that lifestyle. Yeah. Easy around you, and I'm trying to explain that to a lot of people too. And and the other thing is, you know, what I mean, and and I touch on this uh, in the book, is that for some reason people with us our skin tone get different outcomes. So as teenagers, it is just a regular human experience for teenagers to make poor decisions. But for some reason, when black kids make poor decisions, they get much harsher punishments than you know when when white kids make poor decisions. It's almost as if, you know, it was in in my situation, it was literally as if same types of crimes and and they're like, this kid, this black kid is hopeless. This black kid is going to be stuck in the criminal legal system. But, you know, the white kids, they probably have a chance to get out. They, I have some hope in them. Like, I, I think they will be okay when they become adults. That's, that was literally the way it was viewed, you know, for me, it was like, no, we need to lock them up, throw away the key. But for them, it was like, you know, just let's give them another chance. It's, they're just young and they're just young boys doing what boys do. Um, but we don't get looked at in that way, you know. For sure, it's two systems of justice. So when I get locked up for, you know, having drugs in my possession um, and they give me a drug um, case, they say he's a menace. They say he needs to be locked up because he's poisoning his community. But if a white kid get locked up with the same drugs, they say, oh, he just made a bad choice and we're going to put him in some type of uh, program to help mentor and reinforce him and get him right. back. It's just the phase that he's going through, you know. Um, you basically already touched on it. I was going to ask you about developmental problems, but we basically um, answered that in your other um, question. If you want to touch on that some more we can or we can go to the next one i mean that uh, school the only thing i can say about that is like school was uh you know i had some reading issues and um and school just was not pressed upon me in the way that it was pressed upon other folks so um i mean that's 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 about it. I, I mean, I think really if you just have people that could believe in your potential, you you suddenly all you know you all of a sudden are able to achieve things that you may have not thought that you were were achievable before. Right. Okay. All right. That's a good answer. I like that. Um, so, what was your first contact with the criminal justice system? Was it that? that time when you went for the 10 years or did you have prior? No, I had a number of uh, run-ins with, with the law and getting arrested and getting locked up. And I mean, my first time getting a criminal conviction and getting locked up was at, at 14 uh, on just some, some childish teenager you know, activities with with the with the friend and uh, drinking, smoking, and just coming up with with teenage ideas, um, and you know, ended up doing some some criminal activities, um, and ended up getting 
you know, hemmed up and it was it was a similar situation to my my later deeper involvement in, in the charges that, you know, the drug trafficking charges, which were class A. This this was uh, that first charge was, a, I believe, a class D felony or something like that. Class C or D felony, and um, but it was the same thing. Like I, I got I got hit up with uh, a guy that was was white, and you know he didn't even get a slap on the wrist. He got actually just nothing, and and I ended up getting slapped with a criminal charge, getting locked up, put a you know put in juvie for some time, um, and getting a criminal record that stayed on you know a criminal conviction that stayed on my record. Man, that's crazy because um, that brings something to mind that I talked about in one of my first episodes about when I threw a rock in the air at this female, basically not trying to hit her, but just trying to get her attention. And the rock hit her mother's car window and busted it. So me being who I am, I didn't run off. They don't know where I live. I could have just ran off. I went and told her, I said, I did that. That was my fault. I'm, I'm up here playing with rocks on the neighborhood street. Uh, but I'm going to call my father. And uh, I'm going to tell him what I did, and um, he's going to pay for it. So I called him, and he said, okay. He came, they called, but they still called the police, so police mm. took the situation. And my father, he actually paid for the window, but they had mm. already broke me a, a citation, and I went to juvenile court and ended up going there for 30 days in juvenile. So that was some crazy. So I paid for the uh, malicious destruction. And that, that that's crazy to me because yeah. it puts me into the system. Yeah, yeah, that's that was a similar situation. Uh, eventually, with the the you know, we ended up uh, breaking into some some cars and whatnot, and the folks didn't even want to press charges on us. But the but the police was like, "Nah, we going we we gotta get this nigga something, right?" And essentially, even though the people didn't want to press charges on me, the police, uh, you know, still still found some charges to charge and convict me so yeah i mean it, it's a it's with it what's crazy is that like you tell people this stuff like i i tell like my family this stuff even you know that like my family is, is sometimes surprised to hear some of the things and they're like that couldn't be true like there has to be some other circumstances to that like that just doesn't make sense like yeah, that's the whole. That's the whole point. It doesn't make any sense. It don't make sense. Yeah, it don't make sense that it couldn't be possible. You know what I mean? But that's what we're trying to dispel because we know. The yeah. Truth. We, we live yeah. 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 Um, I mean, it's yeah, it's crazy though. They about, about to call us in because thirty minutes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna call back, man, so we can get right back to it. Um, okay. Let her answer, and we'll get back to it right right away. Okay. Hey, everybody. Um, I just wanted to say, go to my website, Grant Parole to Philip, G-R-A-N-T-P-A-R-O-L-E-T-O-P-H-I-L-L-I-P.com. And scroll down, you'll see a link to donate for my legal fees. As I'm in need of a criminal attorney, uh, I also have another link to donate to my GoFundMe for mental health expenses. Thank everybody for your support. And thank everybody for the love they've been showing me. I appreciate it. And um, God willing, you know, it'll make a difference and I'll be home soon. We're back. 
uh, we're going to resume with Dr. Stanley Andrews. Interesting conversation. Uh, I got another good question for you. Uh, what does the term second chance mean to you? Uh, I mean, second chance, the thing is, a lot of the folks in the criminal legal system, especially, you know, black individuals in the criminal legal system, weren't even really given a first chance. Um, so second chance is just believing in humanity, believing in the power of change. You know, my, my book uh, is titled uh, From Prison Cells to PhD, It's Never Too Late to Do Good. And it's, and it's never too late to do good is a phrase that my father used to tell me. Uh, of course, you know, we really didn't speak much English in the, in the household. We spoke uh, Haitian Creole. And so the phrase that he would tell me is, which doesn't have an exact English translation. It kind of means it's never too late to reach your full potential. And it kind of means it's never too late to do the right thing. My dad kind of meant a little bit of all of that. Um, but what it what he was actually telling me, and it didn't really hit me until sitting in prison and, you know, eventually losing him uh, as he was fighting against type two diabetes. Um, but what he was essentially saying is, I'm not going to throw you away. A lot of folks, you know, uh, their family, once they go through the legal system, uh, their significant others, you know, people around them kind of say, you're, you know, this is it for you. It's over. Like you can't get over this type of hurdle. Um, but what he was telling me is that I'm not going to, when you are ready, I will be here waiting for you. And I believe in you because I believe that it's never too late to do the right thing. I believe that it's never too late for you to reach your potential. I believe it's never too late for you to do good. So, I mean, that is kind of this incredible message that it took me a long time to get. And what a lot of people ask me, like, what would you tell the younger you? And really, it's not about what I would tell the younger me. It's what I would tell the adults and, uh, you know, school administrators and people around me and, and that would be to be patient. You know, teenage, this is a teenager doing teenage things. Be patient with that person and be ready to love and support them when, you know, they're able to make more adult decisions. And I think that's what, you know, that that's kind of what um, this idea of second chances is, is let's be patient. Let's believe in human potential. Let's believe in the fact that humans are not static creatures. We don't stay the same for decades. You know, it's, it's ridiculous to incarcerate people for decades because, I mean, there's no single person in the world that is the same person they were 10 years ago, right? So people just naturally change. And if we believe in the power of true transformative you know, transformational change, which is just human nature, we are humans that change, then we would believe in second chances, you know. But I don't think that we're really there yet, unfortunately, like for the most part, particularly when you look in, uh, you know, what people look about Black individuals and Black people who've been through the system and what society, both, you know, not, a, not just white society, but just society in general, views of 
what a person who's been through the system can do. And that's part of the reason that second chances, there's second chances for people with low level drug crimes. There's second chances for people who, you know, the society believes in second chances and believes in helping people with low level drug crimes, people with drug addiction crimes, because those really shouldn't even be criminalized in the first place. And, you know, people wrongfully convicted, but society hasn't gotten to this point where they truly believe that a person who committed a violent crime is capable of changing. We haven't gotten there yet. And that, that says that we don't truly believe in, in, in second chances. We don't truly believe in humans, is what it tells, is what it means to me. You can give a second chance if you don't see the person standing before you as a human being. Um, and, and I'm a prime example because I'm on my 31st year and I've been locked up since I was 19 years old. And I don't even have, I have a non-homicide offense. So whether you feel I'm innocent or guilty, it doesn't matter because um, I've shown over the years right. that I am a, a changed individual, um, that I have accomplished things, and that I've stayed and maintained um, a good record while being here. So I wanted to um, say this because you, you, you did a good job for me when you told about your story, when you testified in court for me. And when I was leaving the courthouse, I actually saw you talking to Judge Jones. The, the, the judge who presided over my case and I didn't get to talk to you after that but I was like he's actually talking to her as a human being outside the courtroom and I was always curious as to what it was that you guys were discussing you know what I mean if it was personal it ain't, you know, ain't none of my business but you know that was impressive to me so that came to my mind when you was just talking about second chances and how they see us you know yeah I, I mean I was I remember that day pretty vividly because uh, it's always kind of an out-of-body experience for me to step back into a courtroom. I don't really like it. You know what I mean? It's, it's this, it just brings me back to that day. So I remember it for that reason. And, you know, what I was telling her is I, too, was thought to be irreparable. Like we, we have to stop thinking about people as being irreparable. We have to really believe in the ability of, of change. And, you know, just offering my story as that, as that, you know, proof of it being possible. And it is surreal. I, I now, now I go back and I talk in prisons and I meet wardens. I used to think that wardens were people with, you know, devil horns sticking out of the ear because I had never met. I wrote so many letters to the warden at the prisons that I was at and never really got any true response and never met any of them. So like when I first met one and there was a regular human being, it was actually an experience for me, too, because I thought they were the devil, literally. You know what I mean? So like to see them as a real person, it was actually a humanizing experience for me. Like just as I want them to see me as a human you know, I need to see the human in them too. And it was, it was kind of a, you know, humanizing experience. Um, you know, not to say as humans, they're making the wrong decisions to, to incarcerate people as long as they do. And to, you know, put people through the situations that they do in, you know, that we face while incarcerated. 
Um, but it's a it's a real thin line to walk. And I, I and I walk this thin line as I now work with a lot of wardens. I now work with different judges. And, you know, I have to walk this thin line of kind of an abolitionist that wants to burn, burn the shit completely down. Right. But also Harriet Tubman, because I know that I need to walk into these spaces and have these conversations so I can help pull brothers like you out and put you onto the Underground Railroad and, and, and get you out. You know what I mean? So it's a it's a it's a weird and difficult space to be in. Yeah. Well, you've been balancing it pretty well, man, from what I'm seeing in the book. And, uh, you know, that brings me to the other question. I want you to tell us more about your organization from prison cells to PhD. What made you start it and what is its mission? Yeah, so, you know, as you mentioned, me being a formerly incarcerated person with multiple felony convictions since 10 years in prison, um, who was told he had no hope for changing, and is now, you know, Dr. Andres, endocrinologist, scientist, professor, Howard University, Johns Hopkins, Georgetown. Recently, I just got back. I don't know if you were informed, but I was in London for uh, the past summer as I was uh, doing a visiting professorship at Imperial College of London, which is like an Ivy League school over in UK. So, like, I've clearly made these changes from what this prosecutor was prophesizing those many years ago. Um, and for me, like going through the actual steps and hurdles and obstacles and seeing how I got through those, it just, it, it wouldn't seem, there's no way I could sleep at night if I weren't helping other people get through those hurdles and obstacles. If I wasn't shedding light as to how I did it. Um, those, there would be no way for me to sleep at night. Um, so like, I have to do this work. Um, and, and really the organization from prison cells to PhD, which is also the title of the book. Um, and you know, that tied in with the words that my father told me, it's this idea that, you know, you put support in a network around people and they will succeed the same. You mentioned it when we first got on, you know, I'm using the same skills that I use when I was hustling in the streets that makes me have had five scientific publications this year, which is more than any of my colleagues in my department. Right. I'm, I'm you know, when I finished my Ph.D. in four years, whereas a lot of my peers finished in like six years plus. Like I was literally lapping folks and it wasn't because I was more intelligent. I just had more hustle and more grind. And I had that ever since I was in the streets hustling. So the program really tells people that you have everything that you need to succeed already inside you. We just want to harness that and bring it out and, and put this support system around you. One of the biggest things that really holds us back is the fact that, you know, the in, in my case, I had this prosecutor tell me that I wasn't going to be shit. But that wasn't that was only the start of it. You know, I always mention that because that was just the start of it. There was just repetitive things throughout my time in the system that kept telling me that I wasn't shit. So people. It's, it's, it's easy for you to embody that and believe it. 
So we are really working to help build people's self-value and self-worth and tell them that they have purpose in life. And we want to help you find that purpose. And you already have all the skills. And now what we're going to do is help you bring those skills back out and connect you to the job that truly embodies your true human potential. Um, and in a nutshell, that's, that's, we do it. I mean, I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty of all the things that we do, but that's conceptually what we do. Man, and that, and that uh, brings me to this, man, but individual uh, wants to become involved in the mentee uh, of your program, you know, how would they go about that and how do they get a hold of you and what is it, what is the process like for individuals still in my situation? Yeah, so actually, I mean, I, I'm I'm not even, and and I don't ask questions. Like, if you if you, <laughs> if you read my book, you you see that like I intentionally there's just some stuff that's, uh, you know, I, I don't care to uh, get that deeply an understanding of, and like, so I I say that to say like I'm not even like all that concerned how you're connecting with me now, right? Because I say, you know, we, we have we have some folks, we, we have uh, our first incarcerated people that are part of one of our outside cohorts. Um, so I say that to say that you could actually, I don't know how you're joining on this call, but um, we've worked out some situations where we have incarcerated people calling in uh, via Zoom and connecting with us and engaging in our program on the outside. Um, we've also has some folks, um, incarcerated folks connect with us in other ways um, that's not through the institution. Um, and we've, we've done both, you know what I mean? Um, so in terms of a person like you, there's extreme value. We, we want people, um, we really want to be inclusive. We, we believe one of the true things that is central to the way that we operate is that currently and formerly incarcerated people need to be the leaders pushing forward in the movement. So, you know, we want people like myself, but we want people like you um, helping us push forward in the movement. So you can get involved if you if you have access, um, you can get involved. You know, we have incarcerated, we have a pen pal program. So, you know, an incarcerated person can be involved in our program through a pen pal program where they would write one of our volunteers on the outside um, if you can work something out to where you can connect with us via Zoom, you could actually participate in our cohorts, uh, which take place, um, you know, every Saturday, there's an application process and things of that nature. But if you have that ability, you could do that. And you could also serve as a mentor in that capacity. So you could be as a, you could be a mentor and participants. Our, our mentors actually go through the program. So we really like build our mentors we want our mentors to have gone through and participated in the program um, so they can really help the new participants understand what they're about to get into. Right. Because they've been there and they've done that. Well, for sure, man, I'm definitely going to, uh, you know, we already connected. I'm definitely going to uh, reach out and um, see what I can do to uh, go through the program and also be a part of um, staying with the program for others to come behind me um, because I want to I want to use that model that you use, man. I, when I say re and, and in fact, you know what? Out there did it, you know, you you uh, exceeded the expectations. So, you know, I'm very proud of that. 
very proud of you, man. And I want you to keep on doing what you're doing. And yeah. uh, I appreciate you spending this time with us. Yeah, most definitely. Thank you. I, I actually, we have a graduation coming up. Uh, I might try to arrange for you to come, uh, if you would be willing to, um, to come speak to some of our folks uh, at the graduation and be one of, one of the speakers at the graduation. Uh, if you're interested, we can connect yeah, you know, offline you know, about you know, that. Man, when you need me, I'm there, man. You know, get a hold of, get a hold of me when you need me. Give me the time, the days, I'm there, you know? Yeah, it's coming up. So I, I'm going to connect with you. It's in uh, just two weeks uh, on Saturday. And so we'll we'll connect. And, um, yeah, we would love to have you. It would be our, – our graduates would be just – you know, it, it would be an incredible experience. We would love that. My honor, man. You know, get at me, man. And, uh, you know, you showed up for me, man. I'm going to show up for you. That's what's up, man. It's – uh. Much, much love to what you're doing. It's just incredible. I'm following you on on all your so, on your social platforms. I love the work you do. I love you know how you you push up the work that I do. So much appreciation to that, and and thank you for grabbing a copy of the book. And please share with other folks on the inside. We're actually trying to work out deals where um, we're trying to get it inside a number of different correctional facilities. So. Um, aside from just spreading the word to the brothers inside, if you could, uh, you know, if you had connections with the actual correct correctional officials, we would love to try to work out something where, you know, we're giving just donating. We're donating books to, to prison prison libraries. So um, if there's any way that we can make that happen, I would love that. Most definitely. I've got two copies, man. I gave my I gave my neighbor one to look at, man. I told him, you know, when he get done, to give it back so I can give it to somebody else. Um, before you go, man, I wanted to say, if you uh, have it, I need you to subscribe to uh, my my YouTube page, um, The Wall Behind and Beyond, because we're trying to get our numbers up so we can um, put the URL together. But, yeah, man, for sure, man. Every time you, uh, we, this, is, this is in the spirit of brotherhood, man, and uh, I'll try to build that also. So every time you do something, I'm gonna I'm reflect that. I'm gonna put that out there on my on my platform. So you know, I appreciate you, man, all the way around. Most definitely, man. Thank you, and I appreciate the invitation. And and this was this was dope, man. I'm looking forward to to getting the final uh, recording and pushing that out on our platform. Seconds remaining. All right, absolutely. That should be done, man. We're gonna get my guy Chris, man. All right, all right. Like he do, man, and it's going to come it's out a in the too. And uh, we're going to put some heat on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, nah, it's dope, man. I've, I've checked, I checked out a couple of the other ones, man, and it's, I'm looking forward to uh, hearing it. That's what I'm talking about, man. Take care, man. All right, take care.